Good afternoon and welcome to From Where We Are, stories of news and culture through the lens of USC and Southern California. I'm Yana Carr, coming to you live from Studio B in USC's Annenberg Media Center. And I'm Sophia House. It's Tuesday, October 22nd. On today's show, new charges and pleas in the college admission scandal, a story on how some of Los Angeles' homeless people found a shower, why and how the former dean of the USC Marshall School of Business was removed from his post, and we'll hear about the Indian Festival of Lights, Diwali. All that and more from where we are. We start with an update on the Varsity Blues bribery scandal. Today, prosecutors added charges of bribery against Lori Laughlin and 10 other parents caught in the college admissions scandal who have not pled guilty. Lori Laughlin and her husband, the fashion designer Massimo Giannulli, were charged today in an indictment which alleges they conspired to commit not only fraud and money laundering, but also federal program bribery to get their children admitted to USC. They have been accused of paying $500,000 to get their daughters, Olivia Jade and Isabella Rose Giannulli, falsely admitted as athletes. The USC Registrar's Office said in a statement that Laughlin and Giannulli's daughters are not currently enrolled in the university. The registrar is unable to provide further information due to student privacy laws. Prosecutors had said that if the parents did not plead guilty by yesterday, Monday, they would face additional charges. Four parents did reverse their not guilty pleas yesterday and avoided indictment on the bribery count. Previously charged coaches and athletic officials were also indicted today, some also with federal program bribery. As fire season blazes on, a new brush fire erupted in the Pacific Palisades on Monday morning. This led to more evacuations, which were lifted by Monday night. Firefighters say the fire is 10% contained. Officials say the Saddle Ridge fire is now 95% contained. That fire has been burning since October 10th. However, heavy winds and low humidity throughout the rest of this week threatened to spread fires throughout the region. In response, Southern California Edison has put 132,000 customers under consideration for public safety power shutoffs in six counties. 18,000 of them are in L.A. County. SoCal Edison says so far, no one's power is currently shut off. Lois Pitter Bruce, a media relations employee of SCE, says the company only shuts off the power as a last resort. It's the very, very last thing we want to do. We clearly do not want to put our, our customers in a position where they have no power. But if this is a decision about safety and a high fire risk, we err on the side of caution. Pacific Gas and Electric, an energy provider for large parts of Northern California, has cut power to around half a million citizens in the Bay Area and Sierra foothills. Early this morning, Annenberg Media posted an article in collaboration with the LAist detailing the controversy surrounding the firing of Dean Ellis. We have reporter Sam K. Mack in the studio to give us the rundown. Thanks for coming in, Sam. Thank you for having me. So can you summarize for us what your story is about? Um, well, <clears throat> last year, uh, James Ellis, who was the dean of the Marshall School, he got dismissed by Wanda Austin, who was the interim president. Um, and the administration didn't really give much of a reason why he, they, were, um, they were firing him. So he was a really well-liked figure around here. Um, and because of the uh, lack of a reason for why he was getting dismissed, a lot of people were upset. I mean, uh, there were protesters outside of Tommy Trojan, like 150 uh, people or so. There was a petition online that got over 4,000 signatures asking USC to reverse the decision. The Board of Leaders at Marshall, which is um, a fairly influential 
uh, board wrote a letter to the administration asking them to reverse the decision and calling for the resignation of a number of higher ups. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of controversy surrounding his his exit. Um, he actually wrote a LA Times op-ed that uh, talked about how unfair he thought it was and uh, led to a lot of speculation as to why it had happened. And then following that, there was a uh, new dean that was put into place and the uh, circumstances surrounding his hiring are still kind of vague and they bring up a lot of questions for, for people. So USC says there's a national search to find a new dean of Marshall. Is, is, that, is that happening? Um, so, well, the search is already complete. Uh, the new guy that's coming, his name is Jeff Garrett. He is currently, he's not in here yet. He's the, currently the, um, dean of the Wharton School at UPenn, which is a fantastic school. And, um, you know, no one's really saying he's not qualified to be the business school dean here. Uh, the issue is that Michael Quick, who used to be the provost here, he's since stepped down. Um, he announced uh, a national search, which would typically obviously involve looking at a bunch of different people, a bunch of different backgrounds from across the country. Um, and what ended up happening is uh, me and my partner on the story, Consuelo Cifuentes, we went and uh, spoke with a number of people that were put on the search committee. It's built up of a bunch of Marshall faculty. Um, and according to a few different people from that committee, there was only um, there was only one person that was interviewed. And that person was um, suggested to them by Michael Quick rather than them going out and finding them, which is in and of itself um, sort of questionable. Um, and uh, the, the there was also sort of um, allegations that there were some sort of gender and racial discrimination and because he's just a white male you think that they would have gone more diverse so there's controversy around that All okay right. well thanks so much for being here with us sam we're looking forward to hearing what happens next thank you we reached out to usc media relations for comment they did not respond by airtime earlier this month governor gavin newsom signed one of the largest tenant protection bills in the country it places a five percent cap on rent increases the bill won't take effect until January 2020, and the current cap doesn't protect newer housing developments. Protesting tenants said that their landlords were using the time until then to pursue no-cause evictions and rent increases. In response to their concerns, the Los Angeles City Council voted unanimously to extend protections until 2020. Ava Shinovsky has more. The unanimous vote came after an hour of protesting from tenants outside the City Hall building. Here's what tenant concerns were before the vote. Tenant Priscilla Vermeerez's rent was recently raised by a little over 20% without much notice. I received a notice on October 10th asking me to let them know by October 31st if I'm going to be staying in the building or not and I have to, my rent is going to be increased from 1925 to 2300 and I had three weeks to make this decision. Vermeeres herself is single, and she was even more concerned about the impact on families. She was talking about people like Adante Masano. He's been living in his house with his wife for 36 years, but he too was being affected by a rent increase. Two months ago, I just got a second rent increase from 1500 to 2300 there's no way I can pay this amount of money uh, with the money that the government is giving me right now. I'm also taking care of my wife who has Alzheimer's. 
Catherine Alvarez has experienced the effects of being unable to afford housing firsthand. She was afraid more people would be forced onto the streets. I've been homeless three times before, so I know how it feels, and I know that that's a lot of families are going through the same thing. Berkeley graduate Alexis Sare Aceves said this demonstration gave her hope for change and support. Once educated, I think folks find out that they have rights as renters, and I think that what's really important that's happening here is tenants themselves are the ones organizing. Sometimes it takes the power of voice and the community coming together to see change. For Annenberg Media, I'm Eva Shinovsky. For many of us Trojans, Vermont Elementary is just a regular local school right across from Mouse on Vermont and 27th Street. Now, we don't want to give too much away, but next Monday, the kids of this Vermont elementary school will make a most unusual close encounter, all with the power of radio. Our very own Joshua Chang has been covering this development ever since the start of this semester, and he's with us right now with two mysterious guests. Take us away, Josh. All right, thank you so much, Sophia. So yeah, like you said, something very exciting is happening Monday at Vermont Elementary, and today we have Liam Kennedy and DJ Cass in the studio today. Now, DJ, can you briefly explain to us what this event is? Sure. So in partnership with uh, USC Young Scientist Program and the Amateur Radio International Space Station, our program was chosen to do a contact live with astronauts on the International Space Station using amateur radio equipment. So uh, basically you're saying is that these kids, mm -hmm. um, how old are they, by the way? They're all elementary school students. Um, in the audience, it's going to be an assembly for the third through fifth grade students, but we're going to live stream it not only out to our educational community, but also through the PA system at their school so that the entire school can listen to our contact with the astronauts. So they'll ask questions to the astronaut, right? Yep. We so, had a question competition with all of the third through fifth grade, about 300 students, and the, the top 10 questions that were chosen are using the equipment to talk to the astronauts live. Very cool. Now, Ashley, now, Liam, why Vermont Elementary School? What makes this school so special for these kids to contact the International Space Station? Uh, yeah, so uh, it's an elementary school. Throughout the year, there's quite a number of uh, contacts between schools and astronauts on the International Space Station. And uh, in this case, this is the first elementary school, I believe, in Los Angeles area where students are going to be speaking live, direct from their classroom up into space as the space station is passing them by. <laughs> and how many times does the space station pass over Vermont Elementary School a day, Liam? Yeah, so, so you, you, you gave the, the really good point there how many times per day. So the space station just astoundingly passes all of us by five to eight times every single day. And on one of those particular passes, it's going directly over the top of Vermont Elementary School and on the top of the gym or the assembly area is going to be a ham radio rig that's going to be making that connection for the students. And I think you said that on a good day, we can see actually the space station live, right? I mean, with our naked eye. Yes, exactly. So the, the space station is visible if it's passing by shortly before sunrise or a few hours after sunset. You can see it. It'll be the brightest star in the sky. In fact, tomorrow morning, if you're up at 6.13 a.m., hands up if you do that. No one's holding up their hand here, by the way. Uh, <laughs> right. Anyhow, you'll be able to go outside and just uh, look to the northwest and you'll see it passing right over your head at 6.13. And, uh, and this 
tell us more about the device you came up with that actually enables us to know where the space station is real time. Yeah, so um, if you want to know where the space station is, you can use uh, a lot of apps to do it. I happen to have created a physical device that plugs into a TV. It's in the library at Vermont Elementary, and it announces every time the space station is above the school, so students really get connected with that. It's a Raspberry Pi computer. It's called ISS Above. They're all around the world now. And DJ, um, you know, as Liam said, this thing is set up in the library, library correct? Mm -hmm. Perfect. Um, so why is this? And tell us more, DJ, about your program that you're in and what makes it so important that it's these small kids who are talking to these astronauts so early in their lives. Sure. So um, I'm the STEM programs manager, so science, technology, engineering, and math programs manager of the joint educational project here on campus. And so I have a staff of undergraduate and graduate students that are all majoring in STEM, and we facilitate STEM programming in uh, seven elementary schools. And um, my program assistant, Rita Barraquette, she submitted this proposal um, to facilitate this particular interaction with the astronauts. And so we changed all of our curriculum at that school to be much more space themed. We had a classroom activity where they um, simulate like zero gravity and how to set a table in space because nothing will stay on the table. So Velcro, magnets, et cetera. Um, and so all of that is leading up to this contact that's going to be on Monday. Well, thank you so much, DJ. So that was DJ Cast, the STEM director of the Joint Educational Program at USC, and Liam Kennedy, um, the inventor of ISS Above, this brilliant tech that allows us to know where the International Space Station is real time. Back to you, Sophia. Thank you so much, Josh. And uh, thank you, Liam and DJ, for coming into our studio. Once again, the radio contact will be live streamed on our website and all of our social media channels Monday morning. And catch us at our radio show next week to hear more. Maybe you saw this today. A big blue bus was parked at USC's Health Sciences campus, and as Christy Hutchins reports, it was all for a good cause. Dozens of people waited for their ride on the big blue bus today. Keck, along with Children's Hospital LA, held a pop-up blood drive on the Health Sciences campus. Children's Hospital Representative Rocio Hernandez says that the hospital relies on regular donations to keep their blood banks stocked. Blood is not manufactured. That's one point that we all should know and it will never be manufactured. With that being said, the only way to collect blood is through volunteers like us. Nina Fukuma is a first-year medical student and a first-time blood donor. She says that the process of donating was fairly simple. I had always wanted to donate blood, but I always thought that I didn't meet the requirements and that they were very strict about it. But the process with talking to the person at the booth, filling out the forms, and like answering a few questions on the computer took um, like 10 minutes, and the donation itself took about 15 minutes. And the technician um, made the experience really enjoyable and fun. Another first-year med student, Akash Dewan, donated his blood as well. It's important to donate because uh, just in terms of research-wise, we don't have a great alternative for blood. For Courtney Causer, a student of global medicine, blood donation is an easy way to help people in need. It's something nice, and it's something simple, and I'll grow more blood cells. <laughs> if you're interested in donating blood, keep an eye out around campus for the next time the Big Blue Bus stops by. For Annenberg Media, I'm Christy Hutchins. You're listening to From Where We Are. It's 15 minutes after the hour. I'm Sophia Hausch. And I'm Yana Carr. 
Coming up, we talk to alumna Paula Mardo about her podcast, Long Distance for Filipino American History Month, take a look at changing school start times in California, and we find out how Skid Row's homeless population gets clean water. When you think about homelessness, you might think about sleeping on the concrete or not having enough food to eat. Simple needs like taking a shower or having clean drinking water are out of reach when you're experiencing homelessness. But one small act of kindness made accessing clean water on Skid Row a bit easier. Matt Kreiser went to the source. Fire hydrants are for fighting fires, but for the homeless on Skid Row, the water they can provide is useful for many things. Mostly all the time for everything, cooking, drinking, washing, clothes. That was Andre Deshaun Dillingham. And with the turn of a wrench, water shoots out from a hydrant neighboring his tent. I don't break into them, they just turn the screw. Fire hydrants that can release water with a wrench have been tampered with. However, there are also hydrants that are permanently available for the homeless to use. Oh yeah, yeah, they have water fountains that they, they attach to them, yeah. Just a few of those water fountains powered by the fire hydrants are scattered throughout the row. But I mean, right now they don't have no only source, so... They have to do what they have to do for survival. That is the voice of Nicole Herman, who works at the Skid Row Refresh Spot that opened in 2017. We're an organization who we give free showers, free laundry, free restrooms, and free water, as well as charging station, 24 hours, seven days a week, rain or shine. Dillingham, who has been on and off Skid Row for about 25 years, says with the refresh spot, it has become much easier to access water without the fire hydrants. Yeah, they're all convenient. They're all closely around. They have bathrooms. They've really done a good job in fixing things up. They have places where you can shower all the time. They have several places. They even pick people up and take you or they do your laundry and let you shower. They have a place like that. And when you detox and everything, if you're so high or anything. Herman says things were much more difficult for those who lived in Skid Row before the refresh spot opened. Very, very hard. Like, the streets, as you can tell, it smells a lot better. And I could say probably like once a month, it's probably over 2,200 people that we see every day on a regular. So it's a very big difference. Fire hydrant, or they come to the refresh spot where they can come and get fresh water. October is Filipino American History Month. Asian American Studies professor Adrian DeLeon hopes that people will not just celebrate a simple idea of Filipino-ness, but that all Americans will recognize the complicated relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines. There's a certain ease to fall into the idea of heritage, of cultural celebration, rather than recognizing you know, the more critical, radical, colonial, imperial histories of Filipinos in the United States and beyond. Many people are actively working these days to tell the stories of Filipino Americans. Annenberg alumna Paola Mardo created a podcast focusing on the Filipino diaspora called Long Distance. Celine Mendiola spoke with Paola Mardo and asked what motivates her to produce her podcast. I started Long Distance because I wasn't hearing the kinds of stories I wanted to hear about my community. Mm -hmm. I am Filipino American. If you listen to the show, I talk about being a 1.5 generation Filipino American. I was born in L.A. in the U.S., but mm -hmm. when I was very little, my family, we moved back to the Philippines. And I didn't move back here until I was 15. So I was a teenager. I lived in Manila, Philippines, and Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And to move to a new country in high school is crazy. A lot of the reason I started the show was to kind of find ways to describe my experiences and then also 
the experiences of the Filipino community because, you know, in 2016 is when I started the show. I started interviewing people in the L.A. Filipino community because I was so interested to know the deep history of Filipinos here. I could relate to them even though I didn't live here. For my family because most <laughs> of us are 1.5. Actually, oh, really? I'm 1.5 too, yeah. Oh, so, how old were you when you moved here? Uh, I was six. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. So, it was a little bit weird So coming here. So, listening to episode four, my cousin, my brother, and I, we were crying. So, really? that that really, yeah. So, you did your you did your job. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely a great experience. Oh. Um, Thank you for that. Thank you for saying that. Because I think, honestly, when that episode came out, other 1.5ers started writing me and saying, oh my God, this was my experience. I was 12 years old. I came from Mindanao. I moved to Canada. And it was horrible, you know? <laughs> Although the person I interviewed for that episode, it's about 1.5, mm-hmm. my friend Pia, she had a great experience. <laughs> she had the complete opposite experience <laughs> from me. She moved to Cerritos. I moved to a predominantly white community in the Bay Area. Mm. So, I don't know. All our experiences are valid. And I think it's great that we're acknowledging this you know because everyone talks about being first a first generation immigrant or a second right but there are kind of those in-betweeners you know and I think it's good to acknowledge that yeah I actually had to explain the term 1.5 generation to a friend the other day so it's very relevant to the community nowadays yeah I know you can't reveal too much of what season two has in store but like what's one of your favorite stories that you've worked on so far yeah, I mean, I'm still working on the story, so <laughs> <laughs> season two is still in production. I will say, uh, essentially the story that we're trying to find out is, are these stories true? Who were these Filipinos and why did they come here, specifically Louisiana? Because we're going there and we're going to find out. Ooh, okay, <laughs> Exclusive, you. Annenberg exclusive. Annenberg exclusive. <laughs> the second season of Mardo's podcast, Long Distance, drops November 5th. The Indian celebration of Diwali is popularly known as the Festival of Lights. It not only marks the harvest season, but it's also a reason to celebrate with fireworks and the lighting of lamps. While the actual festivities begin on Sunday, USC groups like the Hindu Students' Organization start their celebrations tonight. Bulbul Raja Gopal has more on how USC's Indian students are celebrating the tradition at their home away from home. Everyone's in the mood for celebration now that fall has arrived. But fall for the Indian students of USC is marked by Diwali, their native festival of lights. The festival will be in full swing on Sunday, but a few Trojans are already prepping for the first round of celebrations tonight. So Diwali is our biggest event that we plan every year. There are around four to 500 attendees in the event. The festivities continue with a puja, and once the puja is done, we have cultural performances. They vary from North Indian dance to South Indian dance, different genres of music. And then there's monologues, drama performances there as well. That's Shreya Gupta. She's the president of the Hindu Students' Organization at USC. Fireworks have always been a staple of Diwali. And every year, a flood of complaints come in about the noise pollution. Shreya and her teammates won't have fireworks. They have a different definition of what a Diwali celebration can look like. As for here, we just light the diyas and the candles. We do not actually have firecrackers here at the USC because it's completely no pollution policy here, which we follow. We, fest- we celebrate it as a festival of lights. For us, Diwali is not just about celebration. 
it's about reclaiming ourselves and committing ourselves like whenever we light a lamp we recommit ourselves to acknowledge that we are focusing on light over the darkness so that is the way we want to celebrate it here and not just focus on the firecrackers it's only been a year since shreya moved to los angeles from india but through the indian community here she found a way to carve out a space for the holiday i miss um, not diwali celebration but my family because as for diwali celebration even like last year i just it had just been a month or two since i'd come from india and hso made me feel right at home i was involved in the preparations of diwali and we were like it felt like we were actually like preparing you are shopping for diwali you are setting up the stage you are making the props so it it actually makes you feel like you it's your own festival many indians who have lived in the united states their whole lives also have a strong connection to diwali new orleans native anisha patel is a business major who is new to the festivities but is always excited to learn more um the first time i really did that was my junior year of high school and it was like kind of a cool experience cuz like i had never done really done that before and it was kind of like connecting back to my culture and stuff like that. That was really the last time I did it. Ever since I moved here, it was kind of like I just didn't have the time to. Also, I don't think we're supposed to be lighting candles in our like dorm rooms and stuff like that, so we haven't been able to do that, but it is something that I would like to do going forward. Even though people like Shreya and Anisha come from different backgrounds, the definition of Diwali appears to be the same for both of them at its core. Kind of represents like the spirit inside you, like this like supposed to represent like the light inside of you and kind of gives you a sense of like celebration. Celebrations will continue until November 3rd with events from groups like the Association of Indian Students as well. Through Diwali, these students at USC are trying to light the way for community bonding by bringing a piece of home closer to them. For Annenberg Media, I'm Bulbul Rajagopal. Don't you wish you could have showed up to your high school at 8:20 or even 8:30 and still been on time? This dream will soon come true for most Los Angeles area public school students. On Sunday, Governor Gavin Newsom signed legislation that makes California the first state in the country to push back school start times. Olivia Novato has more. The bill is designed to prioritize students' health by increasing the amount of sleep they get each night. Under the new law, public middle schools in California aren't allowed to start classes earlier than 8 a.m. and public high schools no earlier than 8:30 a.m. The law does not apply to optional early classes, known as zero periods, or to schools in some of the state's rural districts. The new start time will slowly phase in over the next few years and is expected to be fully in place by the start of the 2022 to 2023 school year. Governor Newsom referenced studies that show academic performance increases when students have more hours of sleep. But while students might get more sleep, the changing start time might also cause problems. Lori Howe, a school counselor at Cleveland Charter High School in Reseda, says the new start time will be tricky for parents who can't drop their kids at school as late as 8:30. That's going to be the interesting part because a lot of parents work, and uh, right now a lot of kids get, you know, with an elementary level they get dropped off, and there's sometimes before school care, but not every school has before school care, and most middle schools do not have any before school care at all. The late start will also have a ripple effect, forcing administrators to shorten classes or push back the time school gets out. Now that will be a hard sell for students who love their afternoon naps. For Annenberg Media, I'm Jillian Russell, with additional reporting by Ella Katz and Kat Kilijan. 
A string of earthquakes rattled Southern California this past weekend, and just one day after the Great California Shakeout Drill, a 3.7 magnitude earthquake hit the Compton area early Friday morning. Sarah Barker has more on what's being done in California to calm nervous residents' fears. In what is considered a major step in seismic safety for the state of California, Governor Newsom announced the release of the MyShake app last Thursday. Developed by seismologists and engineers from UC Berkeley, this app will serve as an early earthquake warning app for the entire state of California. USC professor of seismology John Vidali has downloaded the app and believes these Amber Alert-style messages could help minimize earthquake damage and ensure that California residents are prepared in the early moments before an earthquake hits. It should be helpful. You know, if we have a big earthquake, uh, getting some warning uh, could cut the deaths, cut the cost of the earthquake. Um, it's uh, really a step forward. The system works by following the shaking of an earthquake at the speed of sound through rock. But it's an imperfect system, and the users of the app can expect false alarms or missed alerts. But there's a lot of issues that could come up. Um, I mean, there may not be a warning for a year or two because, you know, it takes magnitude five or so earthquake to make shaking enough to warn people. Um, the bigger problem is it's hard to get the warnings out as fast as we'd like. And also the warnings sometimes come out when there wasn't even an earthquake because the system's not foolproof. It's those kinds of bugs that um, they'll fix over time, but um, it will take a couple of years before everything's running smoothly. This to hear more on that story, visit our website. That's all we have time for today on From Where We Are. Zazu Lippert and Ayana White produced today's show. We had help today from Isaiah Murtaugh. Yuki Liang is our board operator. Derek Renfro composed our theme music. Subscribe to From Where We Are on iTunes and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Annenberg Media. I'm Sophia Hausch. And I'm Yana Carr. Wherever you are, we hope you'll join us again next time for From Where We Are.